five of us had the pleasure of coming here to this campus and participating in an all-church work day. It was a great time. I know some of you are a little sore, but step by step, the building's looking better and better. And I want to thank Aaron Holder and the team that he's assembled around him for being so diligent to uh, make this such a special place. I do want to tell you a, a, a short story of what took place yesterday. About noon, we all went over to the fellowship hall and, and had some pizza together. And as Providence would have it, I ended up sitting with some teenagers, but most mostly children. And so the children were kind of around me, and I was just pretty much paying attention to my pepperoni pizza, which is nothing unusual for me. And uh, I'm not going to name her by name, but one of the children looked me in the eye with seriousness and a big smile on her face. And I must tell you, before I tell you what, what took place, I will never forget this until the day I die. It was that significant. She looked at me with a big smile on her face, and she said, I just want you to know something. I can't wait to hear the sermon tomorrow. And I was like, I think I, without doing it visibly, I went, because that's not the kind of thing you typically hear from anyone, let alone children in this culture. But I need to tell you, she wasn't joking. She was serious. And I went home and I, I told Jereen, and we just were kind of really encouraged by that. And I told a couple more people. And then this morning, told a couple more people. And then I told her father. And we were all kind of just so happy about that. And then during the greeting time, n- none of you recognize this. I'm the only one that heard it. The same little girl came up to me and she said, I just want you to know, I'm still looking forward to the sermon. <laughs> Now listen, this is more than a cute story. This, this is something that I, I think we can learn a great deal from. I remember when Jereen and I, when our family lived in LeGrand, there was a, a restaurant we only went to a handful of times the whole time we lived there. But it was an all-you-could-eat seafood buffet. And it was in Pendleton. So we'd get in the car, and, and I can remember, not confessing this to anyone, but I can remember thinking the whole way. Clams, 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 shrimp, 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 salmon, salmon, salmon. Are you getting hungry? And just my my mouth would water thinking about this all-you-could-eat seafood buffet. That's what my friend taught me yesterday, is a, a child is hungry and thirsty for the Word of God. And I pray that's where you are today. And I pray that if you're not there quite yet, then in the days to come that you would develop a hunger and a thirst for the Word of God. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you for my friend and the encouraging words that I heard and just seeing the enthusiasm in in her face and in her words and recognizing that she desires to hear the Word of God. May her tribe increase. May each of us, both young and old, have a desire to, to see and savor the Lord Jesus Christ. May we have a, a deep desire to open your word on our own, to open your word uh, in, the, in the local church, to hear it proclaimed, to hear it preached unapologetically. May today be a day just like that where we would be challenged and changed by the word of God. 
God, thank you so much for the last couple of years in this series in the Gospel of John. And as we conclude today, Lord willing, I pray, God, that you would once again touch us by the power of your spirit with your word, that we would uh, listen carefully, that we would see the example of, of Peter, and that we would make the necessary adjustments. And more important than that, we would allow you to make the necessary adjustments. And so be glorified here in this place. Again, I ask that we would be hungry and thirsty for the word of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, the mark of someone who follows the Lord Jesus Christ is an all-encompassing, all-consuming love for God. The Old Testament, as you know, highlights this high watermark in the life of a God follower. You remember the words of the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. Just one chapter over in Deuteronomy 7, verse 9, we read these words. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. You like that? Every time I I hear or remember Deuteronomy 7, verse 9, I am so struck with those words, especially in the culture that we find ourselves living in. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And you'll remember in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, Jesus said to the religious leaders of the day, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And the way that Jesus drives this point home, this this reality for the disciples in the days of the New Testament, is very simple and very concise, and he does it in two words. I hope these two words are are very familiar to you now after we have spent almost two years in the Gospel of John. The two words are, follow me. Follow me. In Matthew chapter 4, he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. In Matthew 8, he said to them, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to the IRS man of the day, follow me. And it's fascinating what happens. The IRS man doesn't ask any questions. He has no rebuttal. He gets up and he follows Jesus. In Matthew 10, 38, Jesus said, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 16, If anyone would come follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the man who hung from the gallows in Nazi Germany, said that Christ bids a man to pick up his cross and die. In John 1.43, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and he said, Follow me. In John 10, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. If anyone serves me, Jesus said, he must follow me. And so since following Jesus is an expression of what it means to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, Since it's the most important thing in the universe, namely to love God, Jesus goes after the hearts of the people 
in the New Testament. He challenges them. We've seen that. He teaches them. He serves them. Sometimes he rebukes them. He tells stories, 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 all the stories that illustrate the importance of loving God with a whole heart. Now in the concluding words of John's gospel, we see Jesus going after one more man's heart. We see the Lord Jesus going after the man who is impetuous. The man we know as Rocky, right? You remember Jesus named him Rocky? Upon this rock I will build my church. And so Jesus goes after the heart of Peter. He teaches him what it means to love God. And ultimately what we will see in this story is the recommissioning of Peter. Why does Peter need to be recommissioned? Well, we've seen in times past that Peter struggled mightily with the sin of unbelief. We've seen that Peter battled the the sin of pride and the sin of self-sufficiency. He battled the sin of selfishness. We have seen that the Lord, that, that Lord Jesus was, was denied by Peter. How many times? Not once, not twice, but three times. And we have seen in the Gospel of John the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ as he interacts with Peter. And we see it one more time in this account in John chapter 21 as he goes straight for the heart of Peter. Will you open your Bibles with me to John chapter 21 and stand with me for the reading of God's word. We'll be reading in John 21 beginning of verse 15 and read through the end of the chapter and pay close, a special attention to verses 15 to 19. This is the word of the Lord. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. Jesus said a second time, Simon of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. He said a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you did not want to go. This is said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that this testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. You may be seated. 
And may God bless the reading of his word. This morning, before we take a close look at how the Lord Jesus goes after Peter's heart, I want to take a minute to get personal with you, to get in your your private space, as it were. And I want to ask this morning, how is God going after your heart? Not your husband, not your wife, not your boyfriend or girlfriend, not your brother or sister, not grandpa or grandma, not your aunts or uncles, not the other guy, not the, oh, I sure hope the Lord gets a hold of her. But how is God dealing personally with you? How is he going after your heart? What are the things in your life that he is exposing? Because we learn in the Christian life that the Holy Spirit is constantly exposing things. Most notably, he is constantly exposing sin so that we would be in right relationship with the living God. What are the idols that God has been exposing recently in your heart? And is it possible... Is it possible that God is on the brink of doing such a work of grace in your heart and in your life that he is preparing to send you out? And when I say preparing to send you out, maybe it's doing something here in Whatcom County. Maybe it's starting a new business to the glory of God. Maybe it's a new ministry here at Christ Fellowship. Maybe it's something that God is calling you and only you to do. As God exposes sin and as he deals with you, what exactly is he calling you to? And I would argue that for some of you, it might be something really, really great. Well, last week we learned that hearts are renovated in the presence of Jesus. And as we come to the end of this lengthy study in the gospel of John, I want you to see That the Lord Jesus Christ restores Peter to a place where he is fit to serve in the kingdom of God. And at the same time, I want to make things personal and have you see how, how God can transform your heart in your life as well. The title of the message is The Pathway to a Restored Heart. And the pathway to Peter's restored heart involved three very important elements. I want to unpack them for you briefly this morning. The first is found in verses 15 to 17. It's what I like to title a bold confrontation. A bold confrontation. And within the framework of this bold confrontation, we come face to face with three questions. We read these questions, and the first one that, that Peter is, is bound to hear from the lips of Jesus is found in verse 15. Jesus says this, Peter, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? I'm sure Peter must have done something like this. It's interesting because as we, as we take a close look at the original language, the word translated love, Peter, do you love me, is a word that most of us are familiar with. It's the Greek word agapao. We know it as, as the agape love. What kind of love is Jesus referring to? This is the highest form of love. There's no love greater than agape love. It's a word that means to show love or to take pleasure. Again, it's the highest form of love. It's a love that expresses itself in complete and absolute surrender, loyalty, and devotion. There is no greater love than agape love. 
And so Jesus says, do you love me, in this sense, more than these? That is, do you love me more than anyone else? Do you love me more than your fishing boat? Do you love me more than your buddies, the other disciples? Do you love me more than your family? Do you love me more than your friends? Do you love me more than your hobbies? In other words, do you have this agape love, the highest form of loyal love? Peter, am I numero uno? Am I number one in your life? And Peter's response is telling. And he appeals to the omniscience of Jesus. It's interesting. He says, yes, Lord, you know, you know that I love you. Here's what's fascinating about this first exchange between Jesus and Peter. When Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you, he doesn't use the word agape. He uses another word. It's the word phileo. If you've ever had the chance to be to Philadelphia, you know that Philadelphia is, a, is a, 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 an American city that is just bursting with history. Just so much happened there. I've never been there. I can't wait to go there, right? And the word Philadelphia actually is two Greek words smashed together. The, the phila in Philadelphia is the Greek word phileo. And the, the Delphia in Philadelphia is the Greek term for brother. And so Philadelphia, and most of you already knew this, but maybe you didn't put the connection by smashing the two Greek words together. Philadelphia, the city of Rocky Balboa. <laughs> okay, you're with me. It's the city of brotherly love. Phileo, the city of brotherly love. And so when Peter says to Jesus, Lord, you know that I phileo you, that's that love that it's not the agape love it's a step down it's still a love but it's the the brotherly love that is a a step removed from agape love it's interesting the man who had failed his lord as we've seen several times a man who knew in his heart who knew in his mind that he had fallen short of his savior so many times uses the word phileo. One writer says he was fully aware that his action precluded him from, from a believable claim to the highest love, which is agape love. Look at verse 16. Jesus asks question number two. He says, Peter, do you love me? And I, you know how impetuous and, and short-tempered Peter was. I can just imagine, imagine Peter going like, what? You know, and John doesn't record it, of course, but Peter just must have even, at the very least, thought in his mind, what? You just asked me the same question. Jesus says, do you love me? And once again, Jesus uses this word agape, agapao, where he repeats, he reiterates this first question. Look at Peter's response. Peter once again appeals to the omniscience of Jesus. Yes, Lord, you know that I, just guess, phileo you. You know that I love you. Move to verse 17, and there's a third question, and this is where it gets really, really interesting. Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Read it with me. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know 
everything. You know that I loved you. I want you to pay attention for a moment and look at the word grieved with me. It's a word that means to be sad or distressed or in great pain. It's a word that that we can all relate to. It's a word that means to be deeply hurt. And the source of this grief no doubt came in the different word that Jesus used here when he asked Peter, do you love me? Instead of using the word agape, Jesus, when he asked this third question, the word that he uses is phileo. Do you see what's happening here? Question number one, Peter, do you agape me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Question number two, Peter, do you love me? Do you agape me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Question number three, do you phileo me? One pastor says he called into question even the less than total devotion Peter thought he was safe in claiming that is phileo. The implication that his life did not support even that level of love broke Peter's heart. In other words, the way Peter took it was, you don't even think that I have that level of love, the phileo love? This morning, I want you to think briefly about your life. I want you to think about what gets you excited One of the greatest ways to think about what gets you excited is to do two things. Number one, what's the first thing on your mind when you wake up in the morning? And number two, what do you think about before you go to sleep at night? That is, what do you daydream about? What are you excited about? What are the kinds of things you spend your money on? You know, some of you know that I love the game of golf, and I've, I've kind of gone like this with golfing over the years. When I was an, uh, a youth pastor oh, almost 25 years ago, we didn't have any children, I would golf once a week at least for almost nine years. No exception, right? And then Abby was born. When Abby was born, those of you guys that, that have, have had children know that, oh, sometimes hobbies have to go bye-bye, right? Uh, for financial reasons and father reasons and all the rest. And then Nathan comes into the world, and I've got two children, and so golf isn't much of a priority. Well, now Abby's at college, and Nathan is playing golf with me now, so guess what that means? It means I get to play golf again. I can remember during my heydays of golfing when I would lay awake and I would literally play a round of golf in my mind. Hole number one. What club am I going to select? Going for my three wood. I would hit the shot. You'd walk a couple hundred yards. Shot number two. I'm going to pull out my trusty eight iron. I would hit the shot. And I would imagine where the ball was going to go. It's a funny thing. You get on the golf course and it never works that way, right? I never visualize going in the weeds or the water. But the point of it is I love golf. I think about it. I imagine what it would be like to actually be good. <laughs> and so the question is, what do you think about? What do you spend your money on? What, what are you focused on? What do you spend your time doing? What or whom are you consumed with? Jesus not only confronts Peter with these questions, he poses the question to each of us. He looks you in the eye and he says, do you agape me? How would you respond to Jesus? 
If Jesus walked into Christ fellowship right now and he sat next to you and he put his arm around you and said, by the way, he's here. You know the phrase, when God shows up, he's always here, right? He's always been here. But if Jesus walked through the front door, the incarnate, glorified, post-resurrection body of Jesus Christ, and he put his arm around you and he said, hey, dude, do you love me? Do you agape me? How would you respond? You remember the whole purpose of John's gospel is to elicit saving faith in the lives of people. And you remember very well John twenty thirty one. John says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. That is to believe in Jesus is to love Jesus. To believe in Jesus is to have that agape, highest form, non-compromising, totally sold out kind of love for Jesus. Do you love him? I can only imagine, I can only imagine how Peter felt when Jesus asked him the third time, do you phileo me? I can only imagine how the heart of Peter sank when Jesus changed the verb from agapao to phileo. But here's the amazing thing. Jesus does not leave Peter wandering. He does not leave him wondering, what is Jesus thinking? He doesn't leave Peter in some kind of a no-man's land. Rather, he doesn't stop with a bold confrontation. He gives Peter what I like to call a gracious commissioning. He moves from the bold confrontation to a gracious commissioning. And in verses 15 to 17, the same section we've been considering, we find not only three questions, we find three imperatives. Three commands. First in verse 15, Jesus says to Peter, feed my lambs. The word comes from a a Greek term that means to, to herd animals. It means to cause to eat. And then he says in verse 16, tend my sheep. He changes the verb here to a word that is translated shepherd. This could literally be translated, shepherd my sheep. Every pastor is this word. Every password, every password, every pastor is a poimeno. He's a shepherd. He's called to guide and to help and to lead and to shepherd the sheep. And then in verse 17, there's a third imperative that Jesus gives Peter. Once again, he repeats himself and he says, feed my sheep, using the same term that he used in verse 15, to cause to eat, to herd animals. Even after Peter's failure or failures to follow Jesus with a full, devoted heart, And to be unwavering in his devotion, what does Jesus do? He gives him a second chance. He gives him a third chance. He gives him a gracious commissioning. Put yourself in Peter's shoes and imagine what it would be like to own the failure. Put yourself in Peter's shoes and imagine what it would be like to remember not too long in the distant past when Jesus said, Throw the net in on the other side. And you said to Jesus, if you say so. 
Put yourself in Peter's shoes and remember what it was like when Jesus said, walk on the water, and he walked on water, and he took his eyes off Jesus, and he began to sink because he had a lack of faith in the Son of God. Put your shoes in, put yourself in Peter's shoes and remember what it was like when he sat at the meal with his Savior, and Jesus prophesied that one at the table would deny him three times. Put yourself in Peter's shoes and imagine when the little child came to him and didn't say, I'm looking forward to your sermon in Acts 2. Rather, the child said, weren't you one of the disciples of Jesus? Oh no, I have no idea what you're talking about. Cock-a-doodle-doo! And then it happens twice and three times. And now Jesus is face-to-face with Peter, and he says, Do you love me? And he commissions him, this man who had committed multitudes of sins. What would you feel like? I think you can feel it, because I think we've all been there, and some of us are there this very minute. We feel marginalized. We feel like we've sinned so many times. We've blown it so many times. The saying goes something like this. How could God ever use a man like me? How could God ever use a woman like me? Pastor, you have no idea of the sins I've committed. I'm here to tell you today that you too can be like Peter, that you too can experience this gracious commissioning and that Jesus Christ can send you out to be a mighty man, a mighty woman, a mighty young man, a mighty young woman, all to the glory of God. There's a well-known Christian leader. Some of you remember the book that was kind of a, it was a book in the, the heydays of the 80s. I remember reading it in college. It's a book called Order in Your Private World. And it's a book that was flying off the shelves, written by a a prominent pastor by the name of Gordon MacDonald. And Gordon MacDonald fell into the sin of adultery. It was a grievous sin, and it cost him much. But he, like Peter, repented. And in his process of repentance, he describes what I call the path to heart restoration, what Gordon MacDonald refers to as the rebuilding process. And there are some important principles to keep in mind for anyone who has committed sins to the point where you feel like you need to be restored. Where you need to get right with God so that you can be a a useful tool in the kingdom of God. There are four elements here that are involved in this rebuilding process. And the first is this. Restoration is first and foremost a process. It is not a a, a series of jumping through hoops just to get the right answer. Rather, restoration takes time. Gordon MacDonald says this, The freest person in the world. Now remember, this is a man, a pastor, caught in the sin of adultery, who has confessed and been forgiven. He says, The freest person in the world is the one with an open heart, a broken spirit, and a new direction in which to travel, close quote. You see, the opposite of what McDonald says is this, a closed heart, a rigid spirit, an unteachable person. Such a person is stuck and has no idea what it means to be free. Surrendering to sin is actually irony because what seems like freedom for the sin-loving person is really personal tyranny. Have you learned that one? 
When I commit a sin and I'm like, yes, this feels so good. It's so fun. Raise your hand. and I'm counting, right? If you figured out sin is fun. I don't know what's going on with the rest of you, right? You've, sin is fun, and here you are, you're, you're cooking along and realize that sin is fun, but what you don't realize in the heat of the moment, whatever it is, is that it's personal tyranny. Is you should imagine while you're having fun that you're in a straitjacket with duct tape on your mouth and duct tape on your eyes and duct tape on your ears. It is miserable to be trapped in sin. The first step in the rebuilding process is to remember that it is indeed a process. Number two, restoration. I originally wrote the word often, and I eliminated the word often, and I changed it to restoration always involves pain. Not often involves pain. It always involves pain. Hold your finger in John 21 and turn with me to Paul's letter of Galatians. The book of Galatians. And look with me at Galatians chapter 6. And I want to illustrate why restoration for a person who has blown it is a painful process. In Galatians chapter 6 verse 1, Paul writes to the church in Galatia, Brothers, if anyone was caught in a transgression, that is if anyone was caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, and mark this word, you should restore him In a spirit of gentleness. The reason I say that restoration involves pain is this. The word restore in verse 1 comes from a Greek word that means to mend a broken bone. To mend a broken bone. And so, as you see a brother or sister who has committed a sin, the word of God calls you to go to that brother and sister. To go to that person and to admonish that person. To get them to the point where they confess the sin and then your responsibility as their Christian brother or sister is to, is to set the bone right, to restore the bone. I've never had it happen to me. But you remember, actually, you remember when Joe Theismann, remember that famous scene? And some, Yeah, I can see some of you, yep, I remember it. I heard it. I saw it. Remember when he broke his leg? Egads, that was gross. And I don't know what, what the doctor had to do, but had to get it, and I'm pretty sure it hurt. And what happens here is in Galatians 6, Paul's telling us, when your brother or sister's in sin, you need to restore that brother or sister. You need to mend the broken bone. And that, again, takes time. Peter's grief, when Jesus asks him, do you love me, the third time, shows how painful the restoration process is when we own up to our sin. When we say, I admit it, I blew it, I own it, man, this hurts. Number three, restoration involves repentance. Restoration involves repentance. Gordon MacDonald continues. He says, a broken world will never be rebuilt until we learn this principle of the unbound heart. He says it must be unwrapped and exposed to the light. The light will show some unattractive evil, but then something wonderful will happen. The love of God will be free to flood in the dark recesses, and the rebuilding process will begin again. He goes on to say this, the Bible calls this unbinding process repentance. 
And I've learned in years of pastoral ministry that biblical repentance is like peeling an onion. It's like peeling an onion. You peel off one layer of the onion and what happens? There's another layer and another layer and another layer. And that's what biblical repentance is like. Is you confess your sin to God, you confess your sin to your loved ones, and you realize the sin goes deeper than the initial sin. It's deeper than the initial act. And so repentance is like peeling layers off an onion. Layer after layer need to be confessed, not only to God, but those layers of sin need to be confessed to your loved ones and the people that you have hurt in order for biblical restoration to take place. In Legrand, we faced a horrible, horrible situation where, and I have all the freedom I want to share anything I want. I won't share much this morning, but a young man committed a sin, a a dear friend of mine, and we're friends to this day. I just talked to him yesterday. And my friend committed a sin which cost him his ministry. And what we learned was this. In his life, we learned that his sin was like the layers of an onion, where it went deeper and deeper and deeper And my friend learned that he would not only need to confess his sins to God, but on the horizontal level, he would need to confess to the people he hurt, to his mom and dad, to his co-pastors and elders at the church he served at, to the youth group, to the church family, and also people in the community. And one of the things we asked my friend to do was to write a letter to every church in our association that we're affiliated with to write a letter to the editor of the newspaper because the sin became a very public sin. And I'm so thankful that my friend complied, that he was teachable, that he would listen to the counsel of the elders, that he not only confessed his sin to God, he confessed his sin to all the people he hurt. And he even confessed it in writing to people he will never meet. And what happened in my friend's heart, is that helped the restoration process become complete. And now, now he has a ministry and a family that is thriving before Almighty God. And I'm so proud of him. McDonald says this, to live in a constant state of repentance is to acknowledge that the heart is always ready to drift into wrong directions, and must constantly be jerked back to control. This is not a call to morbid kind of introspection that's always on a sin search and putting ourselves down, but it is an honest recognition that the inward part of us is inclined toward rebellion and disobedience against our Maker, close quote. And so the hymn writer made this very astute observation Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Gordon MacDonald notes a final stage of repentance, namely the unbinding of the heart. He says this, behavior must not only change, it must be renounced and repudiated. You see, it is not enough to merely say, I'm so sorry. 
to God or to family or to friends that you've hurt. Rather, McDonald has nailed it here. He says the sin must be confessed, it must be forgiven, but behavior must change and the sin must be renounced and repudiated. What does repentance look like for you this morning? It will look different for a person here and different for a person there. But at the end of the day, it means I confess to God. I confess to people I've hurt. And now I can move forward in my life, in my ministry, make an impact for the people of God and the glory of God. Finally, I want you to see that restoration always involves grace. It always involves grace. And I hope you can, you can imagine, I hope you can hear the tenderness in the voice of Jesus as he confronts Peter. And I hope you can also see the, the tones of grace that he offers when he commissions him. Now, Galatians 6.1 that we looked at a moment ago, not only urges fellow believers to restore people who are caught in sin, it urges them to do it in a spirit of gentleness. Can you imagine if Joe Theismann went to get his leg fixed at the hospital and they began to mend that process and the doctors were mean to him? He'd never want to go back there again. And so it's re- we restore our brothers and sisters and we do it in a spirit of gentleness. Now we've seen the bold confrontation. We've seen the gracious commissioning. I want you to see finally the third aspect of this restoration process. And that is there's a sacrificial calling. Look at verses 18 and 19, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you that when you were young, you used to dress yourselves and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And you might say to yourself, what in the world is this cryptic language? Well, John the Apostle helps us here. I'm so thankful for it. He says, this is said to show by what kind of death he or Peter was to glorify God. These are the sobering words of Jesus. In this passage of scripture, Jesus prophesies the martyrdom of the apostle Peter. Jesus underscores the the truth that commitment to him may require the ultimate price. Like Dietrich Bonhoeffer learned that he would pay the ultimate price as he hung from the gallows eight days before Hitler committed suicide. At the end of the exchange in this story, however, Jesus cements the sacrificial calling with words that were all too familiar to Peter and should be very familiar to us as well. In verse 22, he says to Peter, you follow me. What a commission. What a charge. And we know that upon Peter's restoration, he was used in a mighty way to glorify the living God. Now, I've I've taken a great deal of time, both today and last week, to to demonstrate to you what a screw-up Peter was. Right? Here is a guy who blew it. Most of all, denying his Savior three times. Now Jesus, after this gracious commission, says once again, Peter, follow me. And we know 
based on the biblical testimony that upon Peter's restoration, he made a massive impact for the kingdom of God. You remember, he was the key player in the opening chapters of the book of Acts, Acts chapters 2 to 12 especially. He wrote one of my favorite New Testament books, 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And you remember this, the same commissioning that he received from Jesus. You remember what it was? Feed my sheep, tend my lambs. Now Peter turns around in 1 Peter 5, and he offers the same gracious commission to the godly men who surrounded him. He said this in 1 Peter 5. Shepherd, and that's the same word that Jesus uses in John 21. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Who is this who's saying this? This is the guy who blew it. This is the guy who was marginalized. This is the guy who was never going to make any difference in the kingdom of God. Now Jesus forgives him and commissions him and sends him out. And he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7, he writes as one who had failed, as one who had denied his Savior, as one who had found forgiveness, as one who was offered grace, as one who had been restored by Jesus. And I I hope you never read 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7 the same way again, as you think about what a screw-up Peter was. Can you say screw-up at a Baptist church? Well, he was a screw-up. He blew it, just like all of us. And then he says in 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I'm sure if you're like me, you like a good, happy ending. Nothing like a movie or a book with a happy ending. But Peter's life ended in bittersweet fashion. I've shared some of the sweetness as he became a prominent apostle, as he wrote First and Second Peter, as he was the key player in the book of Acts, especially in Acts 2 to 12. Unbelievable man, used for the glory of God. But it's bittersweet because he went on to not only serve Jesus and tend the flock and follow him, as Jesus prophesied, he was also martyred. Tradition tells us that Peter was crucified. But he felt that he was unworthy to be crucified in the same manner as the one that he had denied. And so he asked his captors if he could be crucified upside down. I don't know about you, but I can't even imagine that. Not only being crucified, but to be crucified upside down. Now, it's clear that not all of us, not all of us as followers of Jesus will face the prospect of martyrdom. But each of us are called to to follow Jesus and to obey Jesus like the Apostle Peter. Each of us is called, as John 20 says, to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The big questions that we pose as we conclude the Gospel of John, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? 
Do you believe that you have life in his name? And are you following him? Are you obeying him? And of course, Peter followed the pathway to the restored heart. He received the bold confrontation. He accepted the gracious commission. He embraced, and oh, did he embrace the sacrificial calling. And in so doing, Peter discovered the joy of walking in fellowship with Jesus. My prayer this morning is that you too would walk on the pathway that leads to a restored heart. How will a restored heart impact the way you relate to your family and friends? How will a restored heart impact the way you interact with your employer? How will a restored heart impact the way that that you engage in future ministry? How will a restored heart impact the way that you engage with God? And as I studied this final section of John 21, I couldn't help but think of Christ's fellowship. And not just a few people, but all of us who have all been marginalized, who have all committed sins, who have all to one degree or another felt like, I don't know if God could ever use a sinner like me. May this day you remember, vividly remember the example of Peter, the screw up, the one who messed everything up. He's the one that was boldly confronted by Jesus. He's the one who was given a gracious commission, and he's the one who accepted this sacrificial calling. I trust this morning that you are walking on the pathway to a restored heart. Let's pray together. Father, what a great way to end this series, especially in light of the Lord's Supper that we will partake in in just a moment, remembering the the body of Jesus, the blood of Jesus. Uh, These elements, God, are object lessons that point to a higher reality, the higher reality of the, the gospel that we cherish today. And so I pray, God, if there's anything that needs to be confessed, that it would indeed be confessed. If there's sin that needs to be dealt with, that today would be the day when the process of restoration would begin. God, I pray that you'd guard us from... Uh, the idea that all we have to do is jump through hoops and recite a couple of right answers to please people around us. But rather, may we see the, uh, the process of restoration as one that goes deep, deep as a, an onion is, is peeled from layer after layer. And I pray that as repentance goes deep, God, that there would be lasting change, there would be transformation. And that with many people here today, men and women and boys and girls, young people, that hearts would be transformed and that people would have a desire to make a, a difference in your kingdom. Thank you, Jesus, for being so gracious with the Apostle Peter. We recognize that you, you are gracious just like that with each of us. And so I pray that the work would go uh, deep and wide in our hearts today as we participate in uh, this ordinance of the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name, amen.